Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we do delight to come around your word tonight, and we thank you for the living word of God. We thank you it has the power to convict, and yet it has the power also to heal. It has the power indeed to show us the way we have gone wrong, but also to show us how we might go right. Father, I want to thank you that you do communicate with us, and you're a wonderfully alive God who is a very present help in time of trouble. Father, we celebrate that fact in these troublesome days. Father, we do live in days where nations are in perplexity and they don't know which way to go. But we thank you, Father, our future is assured and we know which way we're going. Hallelujah. And it's upwards and it's, it's even into those heavenly places. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for the security and the assurance that comes through Jesus. Father, please just open your word to us tonight. May the Holy Spirit be here in very great power tonight. Father, will you open these things that they may, might sparkle and shimmer as diamonds before us tonight, that Jesus himself may be uplifted and glorified in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Amen. We are coming very rapidly to the end, of course, of the first prophecy series on fulfilled prophecy. And if you have come to these Bible studies before, you will know that the last four of the Bible studies are, are going to be on the subject of the Messiah. In fact, we've done two of the last four, and we've talked about the Messiah, what the word Messiah means, that he is the anointed one, and we've been talking about some of the prophecies related to this amazing person that we've seen in Old Testament prophecy. Last time, we dealt with the pedigree of the Messiah. By that, of course, I mean the line from which he came. And we've been looking at a series of uh, points that Messiah, when he came, had to fulfill. And we've seen that Jesus' pedigree was impeccable. That is the term that I would use. It was impeccable. In other words, that every point that we outlined, he completely fulfilled as far as his life was concerned. Today, I'm changing tack very slightly, and today's talk is on the subject of the signs of the Messiah. However, before I begin, I would just like to say just a word or two more about the genealogies that we have, have uh, studied last time. Because in a very interesting way, the genealogies that we've studied were a major sign, and are today a major sign, that Jesus himself is Messiah. You see, there are Jews living on the earth today who are still waiting for the Messiah. They are still praying for the Messiah's return, and they're still expecting him to come, whoever he is. They think they will know him when he comes, but they're not going to know him before he comes. That's the type of idea that is in the back of their minds. And yet, the very genealogies that we studied last time are major proof that Jesus and Jesus alone is the Messiah. And they prove it in a most wonderful way. It's a way that is typically Jewish. The Jews were very keen on their tribal history. At the time of Jesus, every Jew knew which tribe he came from and wore it, as it were, on his sleeve. He would be very proud of the fact he was from Naphtali or he was from Asher or he was a Levite or especially if he was from the tribe of Judah, everyone would know about it. Extremely proud. They had their whole history written out, 
And if anyone dared to accuse them of not being from the tribe that they said they were from, they would get the history books out, they would go and check the genealogy right the way back to Adam. And I was going to say, and beyond. <laughs> but uh, of course, uh, Adam was the very beginning. And they would go right back to the tribes that actually came from the seed of Jacob, and they would actually say he had 12 sons. It ended up with 13 tribes, because, of course, Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and they would actually trace which tribe they were from. What is more, if they couldn't trace the tribe that they were from, they were considered as second-class citizens. All dignitaries in the land of Israel had to be able to prove with documentation which tribe they came from. And if they couldn't do it, then they were disqualified from the position that they held. Now, this is very interesting, because it means this, that when Messiah comes, he will have to be able to prove his genealogy. He will have to actually get the documents out and open them up and say, well, I can prove that I fulfill the genealogy as given in the Old Testament. And he'd have to produce his full family records. Would you turn with me to Nehemiah 7, and let's have a look at some Jews who were disqualified and some dignitaries who were disqualified simply because they couldn't prove the genealogy of their own family. In Nehemiah and chapter 7, and verse 63, you have a group of people who are priests. They are established priests, they are recognized as priests, and they're about to begin a new ministry, and they have to check up their genealogy. Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 63, and it says this, And of the priests, the children of Habiah, the children of Koz, the children of Barzillai, which took one of the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite to wife, and was called after their name. Verse 64, here it is. These sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but it was not found. Now, this is a major disaster. They are well-attested priests. Everyone recognizes them as priests, yet when they come to check their genealogy, they cannot find the records. Result. Therefore, were they, as polluted, put from the priesthood. And they said, well, I'm sorry, you've done a good job as priest, but it's not good enough. And uh, unless you can prove your genealogy, you cannot be accepted as priest. Now, if that was true of the priest, I assure you that when Messiah came, he would have to do exactly the same. And that's where the problem is. Because, you see, all of the genealogical records were kept in the temple area. And in AD 70, when the Romans finally broke into Jerusalem, and the temple was set on fire, all of the genealogical records went up in smoke. In fact, it is wonderful for us that, of course, Matthew and Luke had actually already used them to write their Gospels. So that Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3 were already written and had full documentary proof from the temple area before, of course, the temple went up in flames. But what it means is this, that today there isn't a Jew alive who can prove which tribe he is from. They can guess. They might uh, proudly say, well, of course, I'm from Gad, but they couldn't prove it. 
And whereas uh, the guests can be informed in a few cases, it means that the majority of Jews have no idea at all of the tribe that they are from. A few can guess it. For example, those with the name of Levine or the name of Cohen, they think probably they're Levites. Cohen means priest. Levine sounds like Levi. So perhaps they're Levites. Also, the left-handed Jews have a feeling that they're from Benjamin because in the Bible, the Benjaminites were left-handed. But that's all it goes on. There is absolutely no proof. And remember this. From the time Jesus came in AD 30 through to AD 70, any Jew living in Jerusalem could have checked up on his pedigree. So, in other words, Jesus was Messiah, and he had to be Messiah. Messiah, when he came, had to come before AD 70 because there were no more records to prove his Messiahship after AD 70. I just slip that in before we begin on the true signs of the Messiah. But it's extremely interesting, because today, if Messiah ever came, he'd have no documentary proof at all of his, his background. Jesus, therefore, coming in AD 30 and dying in AD 33, of course, had the full documentary proof. However, by signs of the Messiah, which of course is the subject of tonight, I'm talking about specific prophecies given in the Old Testament, which when Jesus came, he fulfilled in his very person and in all his activities as he walked around. Many of these signs could not have been fulfilled by any man. They had to be fulfilled by the man and the man only. And I'm going to begin tonight in Luke and chapter 7, where we see some of the signs of Messiahship put forward for all to see. Turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke and chapter 7. And I'm beginning verse 11. <clears throat> Here we are in the city of Nain. Luke seven eleven, And it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and much people. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the coffin, or the bier, and they that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak. And I wish I'd been there to see the look on the coffin carrier's faces. <laughs> and he delivered him to his mother. And here's the point, verse 16. And there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God has visited his people. Now Jesus goes around doing miracles... And the ordinary people say, God has visited us. This is a sign that Messiah has come upon us. And of course, everyone's talking about it, including the disciples of John. And they go back and start telling John about what's happened. So let's read on. Verse 17. And this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about. And the disciples of John showed him of all these things. Verse 19. And John, calling unto him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? Some people have had a problem over this verse, because after all, it was John the Baptist, who in the early days had pointed at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God. 
And they can't understand why is it that John now is, is sending his disciples saying, are you the one? It shows me clearly this one thing, that John didn't realize that the priest and prophet that he knew Jesus was, was also the great king who was going to be King Messiah, King of the Jews. He, I think, imagined that there were going to be two people, that the Jesus he pointed out originally was perhaps the priest and the prophet, certainly the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, but he hadn't seen he was going to be king and lord of the whole earth, according to the prophecies. And this is the point he wants to actually clarify. He wants to see... Is Jesus the Messiah as well as being the prophet and as well as being the priest that we appointed? Is he or is he not? So he sends his disciples to Jesus. Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? When the men were come unto him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? And if you and I had been Jesus, we would have said, Yes, I'm, I'm the chap. Would you go back and tell... John the Baptist, that I'm the one he's been looking for. But of course, this was the Jewish world. They didn't do things like that in the Jewish world. And John, who knew his Old Testament, was ready to receive the information that Jesus was going to give him. Jesus must have said to the disciples, now, uh, you're John's disciples, stay around for the next hour, will you? And whatever I do, take note of it, and go and tell John of what I'm doing. And look what happens. And here's what he starts doing, verse 21. And in that same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits and gave unto many that were blind, and unto many that were blind he gave sight. Then Jesus, answering, said unto them, Go your way and tell John what things ye have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached, and he adds, and blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. And they who see these miraculous signs that had never been seen in Israel before, dash back to John, and, and they start telling John about the wonderful things Jesus is doing. You'll notice, occasionally in the Old Testament, miracles did happen, but it normally ha happened to Gentiles. Naaman was a Gentile, very rare, very rarely indeed did it happen to the Jews. But here is Jesus. He is ministering to the Jewish people and there are miracles going on on every side. And as soon as the disciples get back to John, he knew from what was happening, from the signs that were described, that yes, this was the Messiah. Now the question is, how did he know it? And he knew it very simply because this was exactly what had been prophesied in the Old Testament prophets, that when Messiah came, he would start doing miracles of healing on every side, and there wouldn't be miracles like that until Messiah came. May I show you some of the prophecies, prophecies which John knew very well, and they, mo the vast majority of them are in the book of Isaiah, the book, the very book that had prophesied about John himself. It was a book he'd certainly studied with great relish. Let's start in Isaiah 29. Isaiah 29, and tonight we're going to be dashing between the prophets and the Gospels, the prophets and the Gospels. So Isaiah 29, and let's just read some of these through. He's talking about this day that's coming that's going to be a glorious and wonderful day, when the king himself shall appear. And in Isaiah 29 and verse 18, talking of that day, here's a prophecy. 
And in that day, he says, shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The meek also shall increase their joy in the Lord. The poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel, for the terrible one is brought to naught, the scorner is consumed, and all that watch for iniquity are cut off, that make a man an offender for a word, and lay a snare for him that reproveth in the gate, and turn aside the just for a thing of naught. Therefore thus saith the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall now not now be ashamed, neither shall his face wax pale. In other words, he's saying when Messiah comes, there are going to be miracles, deaf ears will hear, blind eyes are going to see, and there will be some who will not be ashamed when they see him. All right, let's go to another one, Isaiah 35. And this is uh, even more clear. And in fact, Jesus is almost quoting this in Luke 7. In Isaiah 35, verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. And so it goes on. These are just quotations from the Old Testament that actually happen to be fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Go on again. Go to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, verse 5. Thus saith God the Lord, he that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, he that giveth bread unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory will I not give to another, and so on. All right, now here were definite intimations that Jesus or rather the Messiah, when he came, would perform miracles. And that's what he did. And this is why he actually sends to John the Baptist and says, you're seeing the miracles, you know the prophecies, I am the Messiah by my very works. If you don't believe my words, believe my works. That is actually what he is saying. Now, of course, much of his message, it was easy with John the Baptist, but much of his message was to get through to the priests of that day the fact that he was the Messiah. They hated to see these miracles happen, happening. They knew, they knew that when Messiah came, he would do these signs. They couldn't stand it. They made every excuse possible, trying to explain away the miracles. But Jesus is going to get the message over loud and clear into their ears. Do you know, he even, in Luke 4, don't turn to it, but in Luke 4, he actually stands up in the tabernacle, and in case they hadn't seen the miracles, he actually reads to them from the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, and look what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he says, and I can just imagine the, the emphasis that he puts upon it. The Spirit of the Lord's on me. That's how he would have said it in the temple and they would have gnashed their teeth, because he, God the Father, hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And I love this verse, because it then says, and he closed the book, 
and gave it again to the minister, and sat down, and the eyes of all that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. Having shocked them, he then sat down to let the shock really sink in. There was a silence in the synagogue, and all of a sudden, picking the right moment, he then says, and he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. In other words, he says, Isaiah 61 is where I got it from. Isaiah wrote it 700 years ago, but today you are seeing the very fulfillment of it. And they disliked it intensely. He was getting through to them that he was the Messiah. After all, you see, it was the priest's job to teach the people. Most of the people of these days couldn't read. It wasn't a matter that they could pick up their Bible and check the facts. They couldn't read. They, therefore, had to rely upon the priests and the teaching of the priests to tell them and warn them that Messiah was coming. They didn't do it. And Jesus spent his, his ministry trying to get through to the priests, I am the Messiah, you know I'm the Messiah, and you are deliberately keeping it quiet. Sometimes it was outrageous, some of the stuff that he did. Marvelous stuff. Let me give you just a, a little example. In uh, Leviticus chapter 13, there are laws given about lepers and about leprosy. And uh, in these laws, it actually said, if a man is leprous, he must go and show himself to the priest. And the whole of chapter 13 of Leviticus tells the priest what to do when a man comes and says he's leprous. And they used to do it many, many times a year. Leprosy was a scourge in the days of Jesus. The priest got used to identifying leprosy. Now that was Leviticus chapter 13. But what does Leviticus chapter 14 say? Just turn to it for a moment. Leviticus and chapter 14. And the, and the vast majority of the chapter is on this thing. Leviticus 13 talks of, about what the priest must do when someone has leprosy. Leviticus 14 talks about something else. Let's just read it. Leviticus chapter 14, verse 1. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought unto the priest, and the priest shall go forth out of the camp, and the priest shall look, and behold, if the plague of leprosy be healed in the leper. Then shall the priest command to take for him that is to be cleansed two birds alive and clean, and cedar wood and scarlet and, and hyssop. And the priest shall command that one of the birds be killed, and then the whole ritual is laid out in Leviticus 14. Here was the ritual that the priest had to go through when the leper was cleansed of his leprosy. And all the priests from this day through to the day of Jesus had learnt this ritual and had practiced it and practiced it and practiced it. But of course, leprosy is an incurable disease. It is today, it certainly was in those days. And here is a whole chapter in Leviticus on the cleansing of the leper and what to do when he's cleansed, which all the priests learnt and none of them had ever seen actually happen. It was the one hole, as it were, that was in the practice of the priest. They never had seen this put into operation because no one had ever been healed of leprosy who was under the law. Naaman had, of course, but you see, he wasn't a Jew. No Jew had actually asked for this ceremony to be performed until Jesus came along. 
And Jesus was very clever. He wanted to get uh, the fact of his messiahship over to the priests. He used Leviticus 14 to do it. Back to the Gospels, go to Matthew chapter 8 and see the command. And by the way, you read in the rest of the Gospels every time a leper is cleansed and see what Jesus says to the leper. Every time that a leper is cleansed, he's getting the message through to the priests, first of all, so that they would have absolutely no excuse. Now, Matthew chapter 8 And notice carefully what Jesus says. When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou can make, make me clean. Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will, be thou clean. And immediately, and much to everyone's total amazement, the leprosy was healed or cleansed, as it says here. Verse 4, here's what Jesus says. Jesus saith unto him, See thou tell no man. I don't want to be accused, says Jesus, of stirring up an insurrection against the authority of the priests. Don't tell anyone. Of course, they always disobeyed his instructions and started telling everyone. But notice what Jesus wanted. Don't tell anyone, he says, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. He says, it is the priest's job to teach the law. Go and show yourself to a priest, first of all, as a testimony to them that I'm here. You imagine the shock in the synagogue. You imagine the shock in the temple. The priest just going about their normal duty, and suddenly a man approaches. They knew all the lepers. They'd identified the lepers, and probably this leper will go to the priest that identified him. And he'd say, uh, hello, um, I've come to tell you I'm healed of leprosy. And could you please invoke uh, Leviticus 14 for me? I would like you to perform the ceremony. Um, Leviticus 14. Uh, well, could you just stay here a moment? And then he'd go through to the back and he'd call all the priests and say, hey, I've got a chap outside who wants Leviticus 14 put into operation. And all the priests would say, never. Well, we've never done this. And soon there'd be a major discussion. Leviticus 14, well, I'm not quite sure. I've never seen it done myself. Uh, Are you sure he's cleansed of leprosy? And then they'd begin thinking, ah, a leper is cleansed. Well, doesn't Isaiah say that when the day that a leper gets cleansed, Messiah's here? You see, Jesus took it right home into the temple itself and to the religious people. But do you know something? The religious people didn't want to hear. They were evil in all their ways, and they just didn't want to hear. Now, there was a major sign, and they refused the sign. They were without excuse. These were people, the priests were people who could read. The priests were people who could have checked out the signs. They refused point blank, because they knew he was Messiah, and they knew that they were in the wrong game altogether, that they were in ritual, they were in religion rather than in the reality. And they hated Jesus. We see, I think, uh, the, the, the falsehood, the hypocrisy that is involved in the priesthood, um, not only here, but in another great sign which was given. The sign that we have seen before in this series, the sign of the very birth of Jesus. Now, I'm not going to uh, talk about Micah 5.2, because we've done it before. In Micah 5.2, there is a prophecy concerning the birth of Messiah. When he's born, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. All right? 
Let's just have a look instead at Nathaniel. Nathaniel in John 1 and verse 45 is a very honest man. He's a man who knows his scripture. And he's a man, therefore, who, when he hears about Messiah coming, responds in a scriptural way. And once we've seen Nathaniel, I'm going to compare it with the way that the, the high priests and the ordinary priests reacted to the news of Jesus. All right? Uh, verse 43, I think, will begin. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee, and findeth Philip, and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael, and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Who's that? Messiah. We've found Messiah, Nathanael. It's so wonderful. But look at his name. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Now Nathanael happens to come from a little town next door to Nazareth. And so he's a bit wary about this. And verse 46, Nathanael said unto him, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? He didn't like the people from Nazareth very much, but he also knows his scriptures, and he knows this. Nazareth is up north in Galilee. And he knew Micah 5, 2, which said that Messiah had to come from down south in Judea. So he says, what? Out of Nazareth is Messiah going to come forth? All right? So he knows enough to say, I'm sorry, it must be from Judea. If Messiah is going to come, he must come from down south and not from up north. And Nathanael saith unto him, verse 48, Whence knowest thou me? Oh, sorry, uh, Jesus saith unto Nathanael, verse 47, coming to him, and saith, saith of him, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael said unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. And you know the end of the story. He's so impressed instantly with Jesus, he knows he's the Messiah. Now, there is a man who's perfectly honest about Scripture. And he's saying, No, surely this good thing, Messiah, has got to come from, from Bethlehem and not from Nazareth. It's a good question. If you go to John 7, you'll find other people who are, who are saying the same thing. In John 7 and verse 40, you've got the ordinary people talking about Jesus. He created quite a stir. Honest questions again. John 7 and verse 40. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, of a truth... This is the prophet that we're expecting, and the prophet that has been prophesied. Here he is. Must be. Others said, this is the Messiah, the Christ, that we've been expecting. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? They said, this is the one point. I'm very impressed with him, but isn't he from Nazareth? Shall Christ honestly come out of Nazareth? And they must have scratched their heads. Remember, they couldn't read. See? They couldn't check the lists themselves. And so there's this big argument that's going on. And then it goes on, verse 42, Hath not the Scripture said, and they quote it because many of them had, have learnt it from uh, their parents, Hath not the Scripture said that David cometh of the seed of, sorry, that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. 
There it is. This is honest questioning that is going on. Now, what had been the problem? I'll tell you what the problem was, that when Jesus was around, the religious teachers started spreading false teaching about the Messiah. As soon as they saw Jesus coming, they started having the people on so that they'd never believe in Jesus, and it caused the people to be extremely confused. Let me show you in this very chapter how the teaching was wrong that they'd been given. Turn back in the chapter, so we're still in John, John 7 and 25. All right, and here you've got the people all questioning again, and they're confused. It is the religious leaders of the day who have caused the confusion, as we shall see. Then, verse, uh, verse 25, Then said some of, of them of Jerusalem, Is not this he whom they seek to kill? They knew what was in the high priests. They knew what was in the scribes. And they said, I don't understand it. In the past, whenever they've been after someone, they've been ruthless about it. They've just said, well, we're not having this. And they've marched the soldiers up, and they've marched them off. And yet, they're after him. We know they're after him. That We know what they've said about him. And yet, he's still standing up preaching freely. And they seem afraid to touch him. Isn't this he whom they seek to kill? And then the suspicion comes into their mind, the suspicion that is very much in my mind. Verse 26, But lo, he speaketh boldly, and they say nothing un unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Here's their suspicion. Do you know, the way they're acting is very out of character. They're normally extremely ruthless. You don't think that they know he's the Christ, do you? And are busy trying to stop him coming. And that, that's what they believed. But then they go on. Howbeit, we know, and here they're quoting the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. Howbeit, we know this man whence he is. But when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. They actually say that we know where Jesus comes from, but when Messiah comes, no one will know where he's come from. Now that's entirely anti-biblical. The Bible says you will know where he's come from. Where on earth did they get this teaching from? Well, I'll tell you, the teaching is still written down for us to read. This is teaching that is not from the Bible. This is teaching that is out of the head of religious leaders. And it has come through 2,000 years. We can still read the passage that they're quoting from. It's from a, a little, we call it, the writing, the, we call the writings they're quoting from, Sanhedrin. And this is number 97a. Number 97a says this, and I've written down the quotation, three things come unexpectedly. This is not the Bible. This is the writings of the, the uh, religious teachers. Three things come unexpectedly. A thing found by chance, the sting of a scorpion, and the Messiah. Now, you see, it, it's totally ridiculous. What had they done? They knew Messiah was upon them, and they invented that little teaching so that all the people would be confused. And so all these people are scratching their heads. They're saying, well, we think they know he's Messiah, but we know where he's from. And that's the problem. And you'll notice the disdain that Jesus has. He won't brook any um, compromise with that type of view. Look what Jesus goes on to say. Verse 28, he knows what they're saying. Then Jesus cried, and it says in the Greek, cried aloud in the temple as he taught, saying, you both know me and you know whence I am, he says. And he lays it down. He says, I don't care what they've taught you. You know me, you know I'm Messiah, and you also know where I'm from. And then he goes on and says, but you don't know where I've come from. 
in terms of appointment, the Father in heaven has sent me to minister. Can you see the deceit that is in the hearts of the religious teachers? Can you see that? Later on, the deceit gets so great they start saying ridiculous things. You'll always find this with people. Whenever people are actually trying to fool you, sooner or later they make a step that is wrong. And if you go to the end of John 7, end of John 7, the Pharisees are saying, why on earth haven't you arrested him yet? And the soldiers say, well, never has a man spoken like this. And Nicodemus, who's one of them, says, now look, I don't think we should condemn Jesus before actually having heard him. And their reply to Nicodemus is an amazing statement. Right at the end of John 7, verse 50, Nicodemus said unto them, he that came to Jesus by night being one of them, doth our Lord judge any man before it hear him, or knoweth what he doeth? Verse 52. They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Nasty, eh? Oh yes? Do you come from Galilee then? You want the Messiah to come from Galilee? They said, Search and look, for out of Galilee arises no prophet, and every man went unto his own house. And there's an amazing statement. Of course, Messiah wouldn't come from Galilee, but they now say, no prophet comes from Galilee. You search and see. Well, anyone could have told them that it was a totally untrue statement. No prophet came from Galilee, really. Well, Jonah came from Galilee, and Hosea came from Galilee, and Nahum came from Galilee, and Elijah came from Galilee, and Elisha came from Galilee, and Amos came from Galilee. Oh, no prophet cometh. From Galilee. Can you see, they're finally believing their own lies. These are people who've got away from the Word of God and now fully believe the lies that they put out, and they are deceiving the whole people. Now, it was Jesus' birth that was a major sign that he was Messiah. The birth of Jesus was a miracle, a miracle of God's timing. It, it is wonderful when you look at the details of the history of this. The decree came out, just imagine this, the decree was given in Rome. I want the whole Roman world, said the emperor, to, to actually take part in the census. I want to count them, and then I want to tax them. So the order went through, throughout the whole world, including the land of Palestine, you're going to be, take part in the census, and then you're going to be taxed. At the time it went through, Joseph and Mary were certainly not married, and Mary was not pregnant. And Caesar set a date. On this date is the date you will all go to your original towns, which meant for Mary and Joseph they would travel to Bethlehem. I'm going to count you there and tax you there. They weren't married. And the Jews, being a very independent people, they didn't like being counted by the Romans, and they didn't like being taxed by the Romans. So they lodged an objection. And a team of Jews then went from Palestine and went very slowly, probably overland, to Italy. And they arrived at the court of Caesar and they presented their case and said, this is the reason why we think that it is not good that we be, take part in the census and we are taxed. And Caesar heard it and at the end of it he said, I really don't think I can accept that. I think we'll keep it as it was. So would you go home please? I'll give you time to go home and then I'll send you the date of the new census and uh, the new taxing as soon as you get home. During that time, Mary and Joseph had got married and Mary happened to be pregnant. Caesar then chose a date which he thought was one that was suitable to him. Actually, it was one that was suitable for God. <laughs> Praise God. 
God was the one who'd arranged the very date. And the one thing you know about babies is they don't come unless they want to come. <laughs> no matter what you do. And it just so happened, this miracle of timing, that Joseph and Mary, who lived in Nazareth, found that it was in the ninth, the very end, the very ninth month of Mary's pregnancy, when it was uncomfortable and very difficult, she found she had to travel all the way from Nazareth of Galilee right the way down to Bethlehem in Judea on the back of an ass. And down she had to go. And of course, it's God's perfect timing. The baby decided to arrive as soon as they came to Bethlehem. If it had been a week either way, Jesus would not have been born in Bethlehem. It was a total miracle. And listen, he was registered in Bethlehem. Therefore, all it took was a short trip into the temple. They could have checked out absolutely that Jesus of Nazareth was actually born and registered in Bethlehem. And it was the most amazing miracle that you had ever seen. Caesar used of God to set just the right date. Praise God. That's the type of marvelous God that we've got. You see, the very birth of Jesus was a sign that, uh, that Jesus was the Messiah. Who else could have arranged such perfect timing? I even think that a few days either way would have upset the whole arrangement. Micah 5.2 was a miracle of prophecy and a miracle which only God the Father could have planned in his foreknowledge. It is a most wonderful thing. The miracles then of Jesus were a sign, but his very birth as well, and the town of his birth was a sign, a sign which they knew all about, and they deliberately chose to refuse. All right? I want to cover just two more uh, signs before we end tonight. The first deals, of course, with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, and we've already seen this in past Bible studies, so let me just read it to you. Both of the signs I'm on now are in Zechariah. When, when uh, Messiah came, they knew he was going to come into Jerusalem. But many kings had come into Jerusalem. How was Messiah going to be different? Well, he was going to be different in a marvelous way. Zechariah 9 and chapter 9 tells us the way that it was going to be different. For all the other kings who came in, came in with their stream, the, the banners streaming behind them, with their soldiers in bright array, with the sun catching the armor, they were a magnificent spectacle. But God said, when Messiah comes in Jerusalem, you'll know him, because he won't come like that. As it says in verse 9 of Zechariah 9, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, he is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon the colt, the foal, of an ass. And earlier on in the series, we saw how that was marvelously fulfilled. But there's something else. As it was fulfilled, Jesus rode in, indeed, in the way that was prophesied. Do you know, all the crowds turned out on the streets. They knew it was Messiah coming through. And they showed that they knew it in several ways. One of the ways was they took their garments off and they laid them out in the street in front. You only did that to a king that you were going to serve. And they were saying to Jesus, Jesus, after three years of your ministry, we have learnt enough to know that you are the king. And they laid their clothes down saying, we are your humble servants. That's the first thing that they did. The second thing they did, they got all the trees, they went to all the trees, they cut off branches, and they raised them up 
to Jesus as he came, right, into the city, and they were saying, Isaiah says that your name is the branch and we recognize you as the branch. And then they brought them right down so that Jesus could ride on them. Right? That was another sign that they knew who he was. These trees stood to the ancient Jews for all the Gentile nations around. And they believed that when Messiah came, he would tread on the nations around. So they lifted it up and said, you are the branch. But these branches, which are the Gentile nations, will be crushed under your feet. And of course, as they did it, they thought that Rome itself would be rejected and thrown out by Jesus. And what did they say? Hosanna, they said, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And they cried out to him, you are the son of David. They knew his pedigree. All these marvelous things, they knew he was Messiah. Can you see the awesomeness of this? For it meant that when four days later, or the time period later, when they actually shouted out, crucify him, they knew exactly what they were doing. And they were guilty of the crime. The riding into Jerusalem was a sign that they all understood. You see, they all were without, um, it was a culpable action. They were all without excuse. They knew who Jesus was. That was the next sign. The last sign that I'm going to deal with today is in Zechariah chapter 11. And this is a most wonderful sign. A sign which was fulfilled the day before Jesus died. The whole of Zechariah 11 deals with the judgment that's coming on Israel. All right, And it talks about the destruction of the temple specifically and of the day when the covenant God has with Israel is going to be broken and when the day of judgment is coming. And Zechariah gives them the message and then he stops. He sees them all scowling at him. And in Zechariah 11 verse 12, he says to them this, If ye think good, give me my price. And if not, forbear. He says, if you think I've done well, then pay me. But if you don't, don't give me anything. And what did they decide to do? They decided to insult him. They wouldn't give him nothing, and they wouldn't give him what it was worth. They were going to insult him. So what did they do? Read it. So they weighed for my price, verse 12, 30 pieces of silver. They weighed them out. And there was the 30 pieces of silver. Why is this an insult? I'll tell you why. It was the price of a slave gored by an ox. It was the price that anyone who owned an ox paid if someone's servant got damaged by the ox. And the, a slave was just nothing in the land of Israel. 30 pieces of silver became an insult, a re very well-recognized insult. And they said to Jeremiah, yes, you've asked us for pay, here's your pay, 30 pieces of silver, and that's what we think of you, sir. That was it. All right? Verse 13. Here he is, 30 pieces of silver, he's been insulted. And he prays, and the Lord says, right, take the 30 pieces of silver, and you've got to do something with it. Cast it unto the potter, he says. And then afterwards, a goodly price that I was priced at of them is actually sarcasm. Cast it unto the potter, a handsome price they've paid for me. That's what he's saying. And he's told, don't just give it to the potter, take it, and when you see the potter, throw it down at his feet. That's what he's told, that's what it means. Cast it at the potter. Bang, down at his feet. Now, if it's in the field, that's fine. But it wasn't in the field when he found the potter. He goes all around uh, the place where he is, looking for the potter. And where does he find him? In the temple. 
this echoing chamber of a temple. And there is the potter standing in the temple, and Zechariah must have thought, in here, Lord? It's like making a noise in St. Paul's. Have you ever tried under the dome to make a noise in St. Paul's? Anyone would think it was going to collapse in on you. And he sees the potter, and he walks up with the 30 pieces of silver, and he throws it down at the feet of the potter. Just like that. And everyone spins round, this noise echoing through the chamber. 30 pieces of silver thrown down. And they all gaze down. All right? I took the 30 pieces of silver, cast them to the, the potter in the house of the Lord. Then I cut asunder mine other staff. And he talks about the breaking of the covenant. Now, the point of this was, was as follows. He was saying to Israel, Israel, the next time you see this happen, know that you are in trouble, for you have rejected the Messiah. When was the next time that it happened? Turn with me to Matthew 26, and let's see this. Matthew chapter 26, verse 14. Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot betraying Jesus. And he goes to the high priest and he says, how much is information about Jesus worth to you? And they insult Jesus. And they say, well, uh, 30 pieces of silver. Not 29 pieces of gold, you notice. 30 pieces of silver. Exactly fulfilling, without them knowing, the prophecy. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will ye give me, and what would ye, ye do? And I, sorry, what will you give me, and I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. And you remember, he betrays Jesus, and he goes away with the 30 pieces of silver. And, of course, as soon as they've arrested Jesus, he realizes the horror of what he has done. And so, in Matthew 27, Matthew 27 and verse 3, realizing what he's done, this is what Judas does. And without knowing it, without realizing it, without meaning to, he is fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 11 and verse 13. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself. Some people think that Judas became a Christian or believer at this point, but I think most of you who have listened to the original tapes on salvation will know that this is the word metamelomai. It simply means to cry a lot to be emotionally upset. It doesn't mean to change your mind about who Jesus was. Here is uh, uh, Judas having an emotional session now. He's very upset at what he's done. He's betrayed what, uh, a person that to him is a, has been a good friend. And he's, it says he repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I've sinned in that I betrayed the innocent blood. He's saying, please, let him go, will you? Please let him go and take this money back. I don't want the money. Please, whatever you do, please let him free. I'm, I, I'm sorry about what I've done. I should never have done it. And here they are, they're in the temple, and the priests look at him and look down upon him. And this is what they say. What is that to us? What? You think we're going back on this? No, no. No, no, we've got him now. Thank you very much. You keep the 30 pieces of silver. And the next phrase, see thou to that, means mind your own business. Now that it's all done, go away, little boy, will you? Right? This is big boy stuff. Go away. Mind your own business. And here is Judas, 30 pieces of silver in his hand, 
and the, the priests rejecting him, the priests turning on their heels and walking back slowly into the temple. And in the agony of his soul, he takes hold of the 30 pieces of silver, they won't take them back, and he casts them down in the temple with the clank that they made 500 years before in the day of Zechariah. The whole temple suddenly stops, and people zip round, the high priests zip round, there are 30 pieces of silver lying on the floor, making a noise as they gradually settle. To all of them, the words of Zechariah must have come back to their minds. They knew what they were doing. Judas rushes out, he hangs himself. And they're left. They collect up the 30 pieces of silver. It's blood money. This is money that is evil, and they can't use it for the temple. So they think, what are we going to do? with this money. We can't take it for ourselves. It's, it's polluted money. What are we going to do? Deuteronomy 23 verse 18 forbids us to spend it on anything to do with us or the temple. And so here's what, what happens. Verse 6, and the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and they, and they bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, the field was called the field of blood unto this day. How it really happened was this. They decided that the strangers, uh, from whom they got no money at all, um, they decided that they would buy a field and they would bury these strangers in this field. So they looked round for a cheap piece of land for 30 pieces of silver. And guess what? There was only one piece of land available for 30 pieces of silver. It happened to be the land owned by a potter, uh, living in Jerusalem at the time. And going straight out, they laid the money down and bought the field. And it was used for all strangers. These were foreigners in the land who died. These were people without family in the land who died. And they just wanted them got rid of. Here was a cheap way of buying the land that they had to buy. And it is called, verse 8, the field of blood unto this day. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, and you remember it's the scroll of Jeremiah in which the prophet Zechariah came, which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, and they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord appointed. These are grace signs. Here was a sign given to Israel that the day they saw that fulfilled, the day of their judgment was coming because they would have rejected Messiah. I'll tell you this, that the people living in the days of Jesus knew from the many signs, and these have only just been four, from the many signs that he was indeed the wonderful, great Messiah who was prophesied as coming. Can you see the grace of God? God who never judges except first giving the chance of repentance. God who never judges, except he first provides a way of escape. Here it is, in the miracles, in the birth of Jesus, riding on an ass, and the clank made by 30 pieces of silver thrown down in the temple. They were without excuse. Next time, we're going to see the prophecies fulfilled by the death of the Lord Jesus himself. God bless you all.